Welcome to the Give Back Economy, a podcast about social innovation and social enterprise. Now with your host, Peter Miller. And today we're going to talk to two associate professors at Toronto Metropolitan University, formerly Ryerson, but uh, now has a new name. So Esther is the director of the School of Disability Studies, and Eliza is an associate professor there. So let's start, Esther, with you. Uh, Tell us about your academic background. Okay. Well, um, I've been working here at Toronto Metropolitan for about 15 years, and I started here. Um, I'm so many faculty at the university as uh, a sessional instructor, which means I taught um, the odd course each term. Um, I was very lucky while I was still a PhD student in the social science and health program in the Department of Public Health at the University of Toronto, got hired on as a limited term faculty member in the school. The school's very small in those days. Um, There was really um, one and a half faculty working in the school. And then there was um, was a research institute associated with it. Um, And from there, uh, I guess a love affair began, and I haven't left the school. Obviously, I've stayed on here until I'm in my current position. Um, My background is uh, not unlike many people who practice and teach in disability studies, in that it's quite eclectic. I did undergraduate training um, right out of high school in uh, women's studies and religious studies. And women's studies at that time was a very new new program at the university, at universities. Um, But I was very attracted to its social justice orientations. Um, I worked for a number of years in the field and then I returned to school and um, I got a second degree in nutrition. I think really wanting something very pragmatic, just support the very material, material needs of the people in the communities and with with which I was working. And I think I was really surprised to learn that even in a health-related field, matters of justice rise to the surface quite quickly and I should have known that and um, I guess I was naive and didn't really appreciate it Um, so when I went on to graduate school I was interested in issues of public health I did my uh, undergrad training here at Toronto Metropolitan in the School of Nutrition and while I um, while I was here, I took a course with Dr. Judith Sandys, and she was just experimenting with teaching an undergraduate course in disability studies. And I actually audited the course um, 
as a disabled, uh, fairly young person, I was very moved by the content of the course. I couldn't believe that this was a field of scholarship. Um, but I felt I almost couldn't write papers in the course. It, it just felt like a luxury for me to be in there and reading about experiences and ideas that had sort of played played in my mind at different points, but they really didn't have other people um, to share them with. So Judith's course really offered me an opportunity to think about my own life experience as, um, as worth recording and worth thinking about critically. And so as I was in my graduate training, you can almost watch my work move into disability studies, which at the same time was really starting to establish itself as a field. Um, our school is actually one of the one of the first uh, programs within the university to offer disability studies in Canada. So just an indication of how new this field of study was at that time. So that's my that's my story. Okay, Eliza, tell us about your academic background. Yeah, thanks so much for the question. That's a great place to start. I think in in my my academic background is somewhat similar to Esther's in terms of a political thrust, but but very different disciplines. Um, my undergrad was at the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design in Fine Arts. And I have to say, I think um, what attracted me to that program was more an alternative lifestyle than sort of a desire to be an artist. Um, and that was in the early 2000s, where even the word feminism was rarely uttered and asked at that time. I think it's quite different now, but but certainly um, I wasn't I wasn't out so to speak as disabled. I was noticeably disabled, and everyone around me knew I was disabled, but I wasn't um, supported in material material ways through accessibility. There wasn't an accessibility office or anything like that. And the school itself was very inaccessible, which meant that there, there weren't any other noticeably disabled students when I was there. Certainly, disability manifested in all kinds of ways. But given that there was a, a, a rambling set of staircases all throughout the, the old buildings that made up the campus, there weren't a lot of wheelchair users or, or blind folks or, or um, folks with um, mobility device users. So I think the lack of sort of accommodation plus a lack of who I could see as other disabled peers um, sort of led me to really disidentify with that part of myself, um, which, you know, at the time I, I felt was, was fine. Um, and then I moved to Toronto for no particular reason. <laughs> it just seemed the thing to do. And, I quickly encountered a lot of systemic barriers um, as one would trying to find work and housing in, 
in Toronto without any connections, really. And I think by um, being confronted with with barriers, um, I, I suppose coming from a background of relative privilege, perhaps not economic privilege, but certainly the failure of support, which helped mitigate a lot of those barriers, um, uh, led me to think, to consider a part of my identity that I hadn't um, considered before um, as a basis of discrimination. Um, so then I, I suppose a little bit like after I decided to go back to school to pursue um, library studies, um, I'd worked in libraries previous to coming to Toronto and I thought being a librarian working in information technology would be sort of a practical way to earn a career. And to do that, I needed to upgrade my Bachelor of Fine Arts degree to a Bachelor of Arts degree by taking electives at the University of Toronto. And I was set to, to enter into the Women in Gender Studies program there. And when reviewing the course calendar, noticed a course on disability arts and social justice. And that was taught by Dr. Rachel Gorman, who now teaches in the Critical Disability Studies program at York. And I was very intrigued having a background in the arts um, to think about disability not only as, as something um, worth considering uh, theoretically and academically, but, but in combination with the arts. I, I immediately understood that this, this course would take up disability as a socio-political or cultural phenomenon rather than an, an individual medicalized experience, which is how I always understood my, myself. So the course itself radically um, changed my understanding not only of myself, but my, my position in relation to other, other disabled people and a, a culture and a politics, which sort of led me on a on a path towards dis pursuing disability studies at the graduate level. Um, and after after graduating with my doctorate from, from um, the Ontario Institute for Studies in Technology, I was again at a crossroads and again feeling sort of the sharp edge of precarity um, loom and knew that I, that I had to secure uh, work uh, quite quickly and an academic job is never a guarantee. So I, I began to volunteer and then became a board member at what was known as the Ability Arts Festival, which was the Disability Arts Festival that was, um, had many, had many disability activists involved in, in its um, legacy, including Catherine Prizzi and Melanie Kranich, who were both um, had been and were currently at the time professors in the School of Disability Studies. So that was sort of a nice way to sort of come full circle and return to my first sort of um, passion, which was the arts, and think about it through a disability lens, but more particularly through through thinking about how disability arts could could um, work in combination with um, disability studies and theories and 
and also to specifically write some justice, which shaped what I would consider to be my research program here at uh, the at Toronto Met in in this um, in in the school. So I I started here first as a postdoctoral fellow and continued on very luckily as a faculty. So I've been here, I think, in both capacities probably for about nine years at this point. Well, that's terrific. Okay, so I've done a little bit of research, and there are 14 universities that offer a program in disabilities. So, Esther, what are the unique aspects of the one offered by your university? Well, I think there are a few things. Um, so I'd love to hear more about those 14 programs. Uh, but I, I think first would be our particular theoretical focus or framing. Now, I would say that we're not an orthodox program. We, um, we offer students uh, a multiplicity or a plurality of frameworks from which to understand disability. But in our school, we start from the experiences, the ex from disability, mad, and deaf experiences as a way to understand the world. Um, so we understand disability, disability, madness, deafhood as um, equity deserving, justice deserving. Um, we understand that the, these as socio-political and socio-cultural constructs. So in that respect, we're not, there's a lot of things we aren't doing. We don't think of disability as something in need of repair, recuperation, rehabilitation. Although we appreciate that individuals um, may need to seek redress for the pain or um, bodily difficulty they might experience as a result of impairment. Um, so that's one defining feature of our program is its focus. I think as a program, we've been field defining in the areas of disability arts and culture. I think Eliza mentioned um, Catherine Frizee and Melanie Panich, and I'll leave it to Eliza to say more about the work that um, Catherine and Melanie have done to to really um, nurture the field of disability arts and culture in its initial stages. Um, and I think that the school has um, done internationally renowned work in the area of MAD studies. That's really put the experiences of people whose lives had been touched by the psychiatric system um, at the forefront of analysis as we're worked very closely um, with, um, with mad movements, with movements of people whose lives have been um, touched by institutional violence, have been contoured by institutional violence. 
So that's another feature. More pragmatic ways, our program is a degree completion program, um, which means, and it's part-time, and it's offered online, which means our program is very flexible and in a way incredibly accessible to a variety of students, learners. So a lot of our students are people who, who work already or engaged in social movements or um, have families are involved in their own communities. Um, in order to come into the program, students have um, two-year academic diploma from a community college or some undergraduate training, and then they can apply to our program where they get essentially the last two years of their undergraduate degree to earn a Bachelor of Arts in Disability Studies. Um, but they can do so online. So they, we have students who are located all over the country and sometimes across the world. Um, and they're able to rub virtual shoulders with students in very different places in different time zones. Um, so we run our classes um, both synchronously and asynchronously, or we allow students to view recorded lectures, post on discussion boards where they can see what their classmates are saying and then respond accordingly. One of the advantages of this, it is it enables students who might otherwise never imagine or never physically be able to get to a university to be able to do so. So they can fit it into their work lives, into their family lives. They can continue to pursue higher education um, without the added cost of transportation or accommodation. Or they can pursue a dream um, that they've had, but just weren't able to do when they first left high school. Um, so those are some of the key features. Eliza, I don't know if you'd add to that. Eliza, I want to ask you a different question. There's an author by the name of Al Adamansky. I don't know whether you've read any of his uh, material. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. He raises a very interesting concept that if you take people with a disability you add the family and you add the friends, that could total up to 53% of the population, which would make that group extremely powerful. So it hasn't been done, though, has it? All those groups haven't been bought together. As a result, our research has shown that social justice is number one and disability has come way way down in terms of priority is that your sense of what's happening i think it's a it's a great question and i think that that number that you just gave um 53 percent or somewhere around there would change and perhaps increase if we were working with um 
Perhaps it expanded view of disability. They considered all of the ways that um, capitalism and colonialism and um, it, the climate crisis continues to disable people, war, migration, things like this. That I think because disability is so often sort of formalized in 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 terms of um, you know government counting of population rates and things like this, people get used to understanding disability as defined by um, a, a congenital or acquired um, impairment or loss of ability. Where in fact, and you know, this is something we talk a lot about in our programs. Um, we we can think about um, a range of, of um, subjectivities who are perhaps disabled by by the very conditions that that, that we live in today. So I, I think um, I think that 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 would sort of um, raise raise that number quite substantially, um, and perhaps. Perhaps we need to be thinking about how to how to uh, frame disability in a in a way that sort of includes different kinds of experiences. Um, and I, th I think that that leads me to to think through your question, which is a great one, which is how disabilities relation within larger structures of, of social justice. Um, so I really appreciate and understand what you're asking. I think, um, absolutely, I think there's there's so there's such a long way to go when thinking about um, achieving disability rights and justice. I, on the one hand, um, Canada as a member of the as as a signatory on um, the Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities, the CRPD, has a mandate to make um, all aspects of social and political life accessible, to regard disability rights as human rights. And at the same time, for example, in, in Toronto, we know that the public transportation um, is not accessible if, if, unless using things like wheel trams and things like that. And that gets even more uh, diluted when we when we leave uh, metropolitan spaces, so so it, in just that brief example, and there's so many more, we can see that um, that disability rights are, are not fully recognized um, in the way that that the country is mandated to recognize them, and I think a lot of that is, I mean, it's something that that does sort of every movement pursuing social justice is the, the, the understanding that disabled lives are perhaps not as valuable as, as other kinds of lives, um, as non-disabled lives specifically, right? Um, just the same way that Black lives or Indigenous lives are not recognized as, as having the same value as, as um, as white lives or non-racial lives, well, specifically white lives, and I say that as a white disabled person. Um, and I think similar to, to other groups, um, the Canadian state um, operationalizes mechanisms through which we um, 
that we, the state imp in, impinges on our ability to live. And, and again, coming back to Catherine Frizzi, who's been um, a fierce advocate in disability uh, communities, um, perhaps liaison in the, the, in the government's crafting of the medical assistance and dying legislation and, and has continually articulated realized fears from a disability perspective of the, the consequences of um, giving people access to, de to death in a country through medical assistance and dying um, within a country that doesn't fully give disabled people access to life. So I think there's, there's um, there's a lot of weight behind your question and and the indisputable question you're absolutely right that you could not argue that disabled people enjoy rights justice and freedoms in in the country absolutely i say that personally and and professionally but at the same time i think um fights for racial justice fight, fights for gender equality fights for, for queer liberation, fights for indigenous sovereignty and land land claims, fights for um, for um, um, migrant workers and uh, folks who immigrate into Canada, sort of broad, broadly conceived as it is based because they all touch on disability uh, rights and justice as well. You can't have uh, immigration reform without considering a disability rights and justice perspective. Um, you can't think about queer liberation without considering uh, how, you know, for a lot of disabled people, for example, uh, we can't marry our, 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 our partners for fear or for, for the reality that, um, that social assistance will be back if we declare ourselves married and so to think about that as a disability rights issue without thinking about that as a queer liberation issue uh, means that we we will never or rather I guess the inverse to think about to, to claim that we've achieved some sort of standard of queer liberation under the Canadian state doesn't consider the, the rights and justices of queer disabled people and and you can think about that example and in, in, in all kinds of spaces and and fights for freedoms so so i guess to summarize my my answer is yes i think that it it can be excruciating and demoralizing um to think about all the way that the canadian state disrespects disabled people and makes it really discursively and materially clear that that we are not valuable citizens um, and that has impact. Okay, on Eliza, I'm going to have to cut to Esther for a final question. Three years from today, what's the program going to look like and what is your website? Oh. Oh, and I should know the website, and I'm very loath to give it to you because um, 
our websites are going to change in the next couple of weeks and we have still not been told what they will be. So we'll hold off on that. Um, maybe Eliza can look for me to say what it is currently. Um, um, but in the, what will our program look like in three years? Well, here's what I hope. I hope that, um, that we have a program that has still a, a, a wide diversity of students, students who identify um, with madness, deafhood, and disability in different ways. Um, I hope we have a large and um, vigorous pool of faculty. We're actually hoping that what we have are opportunities for students to be able to pursue our program and work, um, work in areas as wide ranging as climate justice, as um, education, as healthcare. Um, but work in the program through cooperative opportunities. We're hoping to be able to offer a full-time offering of our program. Um, and to appeal to younger students, potentially students right out of high school, and then continue to appeal to students right across the university. We are looking to start a graduate program that's administered through the school that pulls together scholars who work in the area of disability madness and deafhood um, from across the university. And that is very exciting to us. Um, 